Chapter One, Part One of English Men of Science by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Leon Harvey. English Men of Science, Chapter One, Antecedents, Object of Book, Definition of Man of Science, Data, Nature and Nurture, Race and Birthplace, Occupation of Parents and Position in Life. Physical peculiarities of parents, primogenitor, fertility, heredity, pedigrees, statistical results. The intent of this book is to supply what may be termed a natural history of the English men of science of the present day. It will describe their earliest antecedents, including their hereditary influences, the inborn qualities of their mind and body, the causes that first induced them to pursue science, the education they received, and their opinions on its merits. The advantages are great of confining the investigation to men of our own period and nation. Our knowledge of them is more complete, and where deficient it may be supplemented by further inquiry. They are subject to a moderate range of these influences which have the largest disturbing power, and are therefore well fitted for statistical investigation. Lastly, the results we may obtain are of direct practical interest. The inquiry is a complicated one at the best. It is advantageous not to complicate it further by dealing with notabilities whose histories are seldom autobiographical, never complete, and not always very accurate, and who lived under the varied and imperfectly appreciated conditions of European life in several countries and numerous periods during many different centuries. Definition of Man of Science I do not attempt to define a scientific man, because no frontier line or definition exists which separates any group of individuals from the rest of the species. Natural groups have nuclei but no outlines. They blend on every side with other systems whose nuclei have alien characters. A naturalist must construct his picture of nature on the same principle that an engraver in mesotint proceeds on his plate beginning with the principal lights as so many different points of departure and working outwards from each of them until the intervening spaces are covered some definition of an ideal scientific man might possibly be given and accepted but who is to decide in each case whether particular individuals fall within the definition it seems to me the best way to take the verdict of the scientific world as expressed in definite language it may be over lenient in some cases in others it may never have been uttered, but on the whole it appears more satisfactory than any other verdict which exists or is attainable. To have been elected a fellow of the Royal Society since the reform in the mode of election introduced by Mr. Justice Grove nearly thirty years ago is a real essay of scientific merit. Owing to various reasons, many excellent men of science of mature ages may not be fellows, but those who bear the title cannot be considered in some degree as entitled to the epithet of scientific i therefore look upon this fellowship as a past examination so to speak and from among the fellows of the royal society I select those who have yet further qualifications one of these is a fact of having earned a medal for scientific work another of having presided over a learned society or a section of the british association another of having been elected on the council of the royal society another of being professor at some important college or university these and a few other similar signs of being appreciated by contemporary men of science are the qualifications for which i have looked in selecting my list of typical scientific men 
I have only deviated from the technical rules in two or three cases where there appeared good reason for their relaxation and where the returns appeared likely to be of peculiar interest. On these principles I drew up a list of 180 men, most of them were qualified on more than one count and many on several counts. Also the list appeared nearly exhaustive in respect to those men of mature age who lived in or near London, since other private tests suggested few additions. As two of these tests had been proposed by several correspondents, so it may be well to describe them. The one is the election of individuals on account of their scientific eminence. To a certain well-known literary and scientific club, the name of which it is unnecessary to mention. The committee of this club have the power of electing annually, out of their regular turn, nine persons eminent for science, literature, art, or public services. The two or three men who have in each year received this coveted privilege on the grounds of science now amount to a considerable number, and they are all on my list. Again, there are certain dining clubs in connection with the Royal Society, the one meeting on the afternoon of every evening that it meets, and the other more rarely, and there are about fifty members to each of these clubs, the same persons being in many instances members of both. The election to either of the clubs is a testimony of some value to the estimation of the scientific status of a man by his contemporaries. Almost all their members are on my list. No doubt many persons of considerable position living in Edinburgh, Dublin, and elsewhere at a distance from London are not among those with whose experiences I am about to deal. But that is no objection. I do not profess or care to be exhaustive in my data, only desiring to have a sufficiency of material and to be satisfied that it is good so far as it goes, and a perfectly fair sample. I do not particularly want a list that shall include every man of science in England, but seek for one that is sufficiently extended for my purposes, and that contains none but truly scientific men, in the usual acceptation of that word. However, I have made some further estimates and conclude that an exhaustive list of men of the British Isles of the same mature ages and general scientific status of those of whom I have been speaking would amount to 300, but not to more. Some of my readers may feel surprised that so many as 300 persons are to be found in the United Kingdom who deserve the title of scientific men. Probably they have been accustomed to concentrate their attention upon few notabilities and to ignore their colleagues. It must, however, be recollected that all biographies, even of the greatest men, reveal numerous associates and competitors whose merit and influence were far greater than had been suspected by the outside world. Great discoveries have often been made simultaneously by workers ignorant of each other's labours. This shows that they had derived their inspiration from a common but hidden source, as no mere chance would account for simultaneous discovery. In illustration of this view, it will suffice to mention a few of the great discoveries of this generation. That of photography is most intimately associated with the name of Nippy, Daguerre, and Talbot, who were successful in 1839 along different lines of research. But Thomas Wedgwood was a photographer in 1802, though he could not fix his pictures. As to the origin of species, Wallace is well known to have had an independent share in its discovery, side by side with the far more comprehensive investigations of Darwin. In spectrum analysis, the remarks of Stokes were interior to and independent of the works of Kirchhoff and Bunsen. Electric telegraphy has numerous parents, German, English and American. The idea of conservation of energy has unnumbered roots. The simultaneous discovery of the planet Neptune on theoretical grounds by Leverrier and Adams is a very curious instance of what we are considering. 
in patent inventions the fact of simultaneous discovery is notoriously frequent it would therefore appear that few discoveries are wholly due to a single man but rather that vague and imperfect ideas which float in conversation and literature must grow gather and develop until some more perspicacious and prompt mind than the rest clearly sees them thus laplace is understood to have seized on kant's nebular hypothesis and bentham on priestley's phrase the greatest happiness of the greatest number and each of them elaborated the idea he had so seized into a system the first discoverers beat their contemporaries in point of time and by doing so they become leaders of thought they direct the intellectual energy of the day into the channels they opened it would have run in, in other channels but for their labour it is therefore due to them not that science progresses but that her progress is as rapid as it is and in the direction towards which they themselves have striven we must neither underrate nor overrate their achievements i would compare the small band of men who had achieved a conspicuous scientific position to islands which are not the detached objects they appear to the vulgar eye but only the uppermost portions of hills whose bulk is unseen to pursue this metaphor the range of my inquiry dips a few fathoms below the level at which popular reputation begins it is of interest to know the ratio which the numbers of the leading scientific men bear to the population of england generally i obtain it in this way although one hundred and eighty persons only were on my list i reckon as already mentioned that it would have been possible to have included three hundred of the same ages without descending in the scale of scientific position also it appears that the ages of half of the number of my list lie between fifty and sixty-five and that about three-quarters of these may be considered for census comparisons as english i combine these numbers and compare them with that of the male population of england and wales between the same limits of age and find the required ratio to be about one in ten thousand what then are the conditions of nature and the various circumstances and conditions of life which i include under the general name of nurture which have selected the one and left the remainder the object of this book is to answer this question data my data are the autobiographical replies to a very long series of printed questions addressed severally to the 180 men whose names were in the list I have described, and they fill two large portfolios. I cannot sufficiently thank my correspondents for the courteousness with which they replied to my very troublesome queries, the great pains they have taken to be precise and truthful in their statements, and the confidence proposed in my discretion. Those of the answers which are selected for statistical treatment somewhat exceed 100 in number. In addition to these, I have utilized several others which were too incomplete for statistical purposes or which arrived late, but these also have been of real service to me, sometimes in corroborating at others in questioning previous provisional conclusions. I wish emphatically to add that the foremost members of the scientific world have contributed in full proportion to their numbers it must not for a moment be supposed that mediocrity is unduly represented in my data natural history is an impersonal result i am therefore able to treat my subject anonymously with the exception of one chapter in which the pedigrees of certain families are given nature and nurture the phrase nature and nurture is a convenient jingle of words for it separates under two distinct heads the innumerable elements of which personality is composed Nature is all that a man brings with himself into the world. Nurture is every influence from without that affects him after his birth. The distinction is clear. 
the one produces the infant such as it actually is including its latent faculties of growth of body and mind the other affords the environment amid which the growth takes place by which natural tendencies may be strengthened or thwarted or wholly new ones implanted neither of the terms implies any theory natural gifts may or may not be hereditary Nurture does not especially consist of food, clothing, education, or tradition, but it includes all these and similar influences, whether known or unknown. When nature and nurture compete for supremacy on equal terms in the sense to be explained, the former proves the stronger. It is needless to insist that neither is self-sufficient. The highest natural endowments may be stuffed by defective nurture, while no carefulness of nurture can overcome the evil tendencies of an intrinsically bad physique, weak brain, or brutal disposition differences of nurture stamp unmistakable marks on the disposition of the soldier clergyman or scholar but are wholly insufficient to efface the deeper marks of individual character the impress of class distinctions is superficial and may be compared to those which give a general resemblance to a family of daughters at a provincial ball all dressed alike and so similar in voice and address as to puzzle a recently introduced partner in his endeavours to recollect with which of them he is engaged to dance but an intimate friend forgets their general resemblance in the presence of the far greater dissimilarity which he has learned to appreciate there are twins of the same sex so alike in body and mind that not even their own mothers can distinguish them their features voice and expressions are similar they see things in the same light and their ideas follow the same laws of association this close resemblance necessarily gives way under the gradually accumulated influences of difference of nurture but it often lasts till manhood i have been told of a case in which two twin brothers both married the one a medical man and the other a clergyman were staying at the same house one morning for a joke they changed their neckties and each impersonated the other sitting by his wife through the whole of the breakfast without discovery shakespeare was a close observer of nature it is therefore worth recollecting that he recognises in his thirty-six plays three pairs of family likenesses so deceptive as to create absurd confusion two of these pairs are in the comedy of errors and the other in twelfth night volume one i heard of a case not many years back in which a young englishman had travelled to st petersburg then much less accessible than now with no letters of introduction and who lost his pocket-book and was penniless he was walking along the quay in some despair at his prospects when he was startled by the cheery voice of a stranger who accosted him saying he required no introduction because his family likeness proclaimed him to be the son of an old friend the englishman did not conceal his difficulties and the stranger actually lent him the sum he needed on the guarantee of his family likeness confirmed no doubt by some conversation in this and similar instances how small has been the influence of nurture the child had developed into manhood along a predestined course laid out in his nature it would be impossible to find a converse instance in which two persons unlike at their birth had been moulded by similarity of nurture into so close a resemblance that their nearest relations failed to distinguish them let us quote shakespeare again as an illustration in a midsummer night's dream three two helena and hermia who had been inseparable in childhood and girlhood and had identical nurture so we grew together like to a double cherry seeming parted but yet a union in partition we're physically quite unlike the one was short and dark the other tall and fair therefore the similarity of their nurture did not affect their features 
the moral likeness was superficial because a sore trial of temper which produced a violent quarrel between them brought out great dissimilarity of character in the competition between nature and nurture when the differences in either case do not exceed those which distinguish individuals of the same race living in the same country under no very exceptional conditions nature certainly proves the stronger of the two race and birthplace as regards the race of the scientific men on my list it has already been mentioned that for the purpose of a census enumeration three-fourths may be considered english but their precise origin is as follows omitting a few germans out of every ten scientific men five are pure english one is anglo-welsh one is anglo-irish one is pure scotch one includes anglo-scotch scotch-irish pure irish welsh manx and channel islands finally one is unclassed these unclassed are of extremely mixed origin one is in about equal degrees english irish french and german another is english scotch creole and dutch another english dutch creole and swedish and so on i trust the reader knows what creoles are namely the descendants of white families long settled in a tropical colony and that he does not confound the term with mulattoes i give this information without being able to make much present use of it it is chiefly intended to serve as a standard with which other natural groups may hereafter be compared such as groups of artists or of literary men one would desire to know whether persons in england generally show so great a diversity of origin but it is somewhat difficult to answer the question owing to a want of precision in the word generally if we were to go to rural districts or small stagnant towns we should find much less variety of origin but i think there would be quite as much in the more energetic classes of the metropolis who have immigrated from all quarters some haphazard selecting which i tried confirmed this view then comes the important question is this a sign that a mixture of one or more of the various civilized races is more conductive to form an able offspring no doubt the varied nurture due to separate streams of tradition has great influence in awakening original thought but we are not speaking of this now the question is about nature on an analysis of the scientific status of the men on my list it appeared to me that their ability is high in proportion to their numbers among those of pure race the border men and lowland scotch come out exceedingly well the anglo-irish and anglo-welsh notwithstanding eminent individual exceptions would as a whole rank last owing to my list not being exhausted i hardly like to attempt conclusions as to the precise productiveness of scientific ability of the scotch english and irish severally but there cannot be a shadow of doubt that its degrees are in the order i have named the birthplace of scientific men and of their parents are usually in towns away from the sea coast out of every five birthplaces i found that one lies in london or its suburbs one in an important town such as edinburgh glasgow dublin birmingham liverpool or manchester one is in a small town and two either in a village or actually in the country these returns are given with more detail in the footnote the branch of science pursued is often in curious disaccord with the surrounding influence of the birthplace mechanicians are usually hardy lads born in the country biologists are frequently pure townsfolk partially in consequence of the prevalence of their urban distribution i find that an irregular plot may be marked on the map of england which includes much less than one half of its area but more than ninety two per cent of the birthplaces of the english scientific men or of their parents 
The accompanying diagram shows its position. One thin arm abuts on the sea between Hastings and Folkestone, and runs northwards over London and Birmingham, where it is joined by another thin arm preceding from Cornwall and Devonshire, crossing the Bristol Channel to Swansea, and thence to Worcester. The two arms are now combined into one of double breadth. It covers Nottingham, Shrewsbury, Liverpool, and Manchester. Above these latitudes, it again narrows, and after sending a small branch to Hull, proceeds northwards to Newcastle, Edinburgh, and Glasgow. Thus, there are large areas in England and Wales outside this irregular plot which are very deficient in Aboriginal science. One comprises the whole of the eastern counties. Another includes the huge triangle at whose angles Hastings, Worcester, and Exeter, or rather Exmouth, are situated. Occupation of Parents and Position in Life my list contains men who have been born in every social grade, from the highest order in the peerage down to the factory hand and simple peasant, but the returns which I shall discuss do not range quite so widely. These are ninety-six in number, and may be classified as follows, but the same name appears in two classes on eleven occasions, so that the total entries are raised to one hundred and seven. Noblemen and private gentlemen, nine. Army and navy, six. Civil service, nine subordinate officers three total eighteen law eleven medical nine clergy ministers six teachers six architect one secretary to an insurance office one total thirty four bankers seven merchants twenty one manufacturers fifteen total forty three farmers two others one total of one hundred and seven the terms used in the third and fourth groups must be understood in a very general sense. Thus, there are some merchants on a very small scale indeed, and others on a very large one. It is by no means the case that those who have raised themselves by their abilities are found to be abler than their contemporaries who began their careers with advantages of fortune and social position. They are not more distinguished as original investigators, neither are they more discerning in those numerous questions not strictly scientific which happen to be brought before the councils of scientific societies there can be no doubt but that the upper classes of a nation like our own which are largely and continually recruited by selections from below are by far the most productive of natural ability the lower classes are in truth the residuum of the six clergymen or ministers who were fathers of scientific men, no less than four appear in a second category, viz. 1. Clergyman and schoolmaster. 2. Physician, afterwards clergyman. 3. Unitarian minister and schoolmaster. 4. Professor of classics, afterwards an independent minister. Among the successful graduates of Oxford and Cambridge, and among purely literary men, we find a much larger proportion of sons of clergymen. There is at Cambridge a well-known university scholarship, called the Bell, which is open only to sons of clergymen of the Church of England. As it has been chiefly given for classical proficiency, we may be almost sure that the senior classic of his year, if he were the son of a clergyman, would also be a Bell scholar. I looked through the lists and found that out of 45 senior classics, 1824-68 to 68 inclusive, 10 had gained the scholarship. Whence I conclude that at least one out of every four or five Cambridge graduates is the son of a clergyman. At this rate, out of one hundred Cambridge graduates, twenty-two would have had clergymen of the Church of England for their fathers. 
whereas out of one hundred scientific men only three or four were so circumstanced it is therefore a fact that in proportion to the pains bestowed on their education generally the sons of clergymen rarely take a lead in science the pursuit of science is uncongenial to the priestly character it has fallen to my lot to serve for many years on the councils of many scientific societies and excepting a very few astronomers and mathematicians about whom i will speak directly i can only recall three colleagues who were clergymen curiously enough two of these the revs baden powell and dunbar heath have been prosecuted for unorthodoxy the third was bishop wilberforce who can hardly be said to have loved science he rarely attended the meetings but delighted in administration and sought openings for indirect influence the reason for the abstinence of clergymen from scientific work cannot be that they are too busy too much home tied or cramped in pecuniary means because other professional men more busy more at the call of others and having less assured revenues are abundantly presented on all the council lists not caring to trust my unaided recollections i have examined the council lists of ten scientific societies at or near the three periods eighteen fifty eighteen sixty eighteen seventy there have been changes in some of the societies and there are many trifling peculiarities of detail tedious and unnecessary here to deal with but the following statement is substantially correct the ordinary members of council are on a rough general average twenty in number to each of the following societies one royal two british association three astronomical four chemical five geological six linnean seven zoological eight geographical nine and ten the two predecessors of the recently established anthropological institute viz ethnological and anthropological eleven statistical therefore as we are dealing with three distinct periods eleven societies and twenty members of council to each there have been about three multiplied by eleven multiplied by twenty equals six hundred and sixty separate appointments clergymen have held only sixteen of these or one in forty and they have in nearly every case been attached to those subdivisions of science which have fewer salient points to scratch or jar against dogma thus professor chalice dr lloyd dr robinson dr Wewell, rev j fisher rev w webb rev vernon harcourt professor pritchard professor price rev j barlow and professor willis are all chiefly connected with astronomy physics and mathematics the five remaining names are those of rev g c renard the geographer bishop wilberforce and the rev dunbar heath of whom i have already spoken the rev dr nicholson and the rev canon greenwell there is not a single biologist among them physical peculiarities of parents it has been frequently asserted that certain physical peculiarities in the parents clash and that others combine happily in the offspring i therefore thought it well to make inquiries as to the figure complexion colour of hair height and other physical peculiarities of the fathers and mothers of the scientific men i also asked about the temperaments if they were marked but the answers to these were few tables showing the number of cases in which there has been harmony indifference or contrast between various physical peculiarities of the two parents Our tables displayed on the page the temperament of parents summary harmony 
10 cases. Contrast, 2. Indifferent, 10. Total, 22. Tables displayed on page. Color of hair of parents. Summary, harmony, 44 cases. Contrast, 6. Indifferent, 22. Total, 72. I have in addition 11 cases of colored hair. Yellowish, sandy, red, light auburn, dark auburn, chestnut, but not one case of strict harmony among them. A table is displayed on the page, figure of parents of scientific men. Summary, harmony, 24 cases, contrast, 23, indifferent, 24, total, 71. The foregoing tables show results bearing on the question whether harmony or contrast prevails in the physical characteristics of the parents. I think they must be accepted as decidedly in favour of harmony. The grand totals which they give are 78 cases of harmony, 31 of contrast, and 56 of indifference. In short, there is more purity of breed in scientific men than would have resulted from haphazard marriages. In the temperaments of their parents, harmony strongly prevails over contrast, the proportion being 5 to 1 in favour of the former. Colour of hair, harmony is twice as frequent as contrast. In figure, it is equally common because corpulent, stout or plump persons of one sex seem to have a peculiar and reciprocated liking for spare, neat or small persons of the other. This is literally the only case in these tables where a love of contrast equals that of harmony. I came to much the same conclusions by giving appropriate marks for harmony, contrast and indifference to each quality in each case, thus obtaining aggregate marks for every pair, which I treated on much the same principle that their separate qualities are treated in the table. As regards height, there is a stricter method of investigation which statisticians will appreciate. It is well known by repeated experience that the heights of men and of women in any large group are distributed according to the law of frequency of error. In other words, the proportionate numbers of people of different heights corresponds to what would have been the case supposing stature to be due to the aggregate action of many small and independent variable causes. The probability is inconceivably small that all the independent causes should in any given case cooperate to produce an excess of height. If they did so, the result will be a Brobdignagian giant, or that they should all cooperate to produce a deficiency in height, in which case the result would be a Lilliputian dwarf. On the other hand, the probability is great that the number and effects of the causes in excess and those in deficiency of their several average values will be pretty equal. As for these and all other intermediate cases, their relative frequency is determined by the above law which is based on that by which the relative frequency of different runs of luck is calculated. I now proceed to apply this law. I have 62 cases in which the heights of both parents are given numerically, whence it appears that 1. The average height of the fathers is between 5 foot 9 inches and 5 foot 9 and a quarter inches, and that that distribution conforms closely to the law of frequency of error, the probable error of the series being 1.7 inches. 2. The average height of the mothers is 5 foot 4.5 inches, and the distribution of their heights conforms fairly to the above-mentioned law, the probable error of the series being 1.9 inches. It follows from the well-known properties of the law in question, that if there had been no sexual selection in respect of height, the sum of the heights of the two parents would also conform to the law of frequency of error. It appears from the facts in this chapter that the marriages of parents of the scientific men on my list actually tended to produce differentiation and purity of race. 
My data concerning the parents of men of other groups are insufficient to enable me yet to give comparative results showing how far the selective sexual interests of the population generally would thwart, be indifferent to, or cooperate with the influences of future social restrictions on unsuitable marriages or encouragement of suitable ones. Primogenitor, etc. The following statements shows, in percentages, the position of the scientific men in respect to age among their brothers and sisters. Only sons, 22 cases. Eldest sons, 26 cases. Youngest sons, 15 cases. Of those who are neither eldest nor youngest, 13 come in the elder half of the family, 12 in the younger half, and 11 are exactly in the middle. Total, 99. It further appears that, at the time of the birth of the scientific men, the ages of their fathers averaged 36 years, and those of their mothers 30. The details are shown in the table below. Table is displayed on the page, Age of Parents at Birth of Scientific Men. There are two columns going across, with the number of cases, and the fathers and mothers. Under 20, fathers 0, mothers 2. 20, Onwards, fathers 1, mothers 20. 25 onwards, fathers 15, mothers 26. 30 onwards, fathers 34, mothers 34. 35 onwards, fathers 22, mothers 12. 40 onwards, fathers 17, mothers 5. 45 onwards, fathers 7, mothers 1. 50 and above, fathers 4, mothers no data. 100 total cases. Putting these facts together, viz. 1. That elder sons appear nearly twice as often as younger sons. 2. That as regards intermediate children, the elder and younger halves of the family contribute equally. And 3. That only sons are as common as elder sons. We must conclude that the age of the parents, within the limits with which we chiefly have to deal, has little influence on the nature of the child. Secondly, that the elder sons have on the whole decided advantages of nurture over the younger sons. They are more likely to become possessed of independent means, and therefore able to follow the pursuits that have most attraction to their tastes. They are treated more as companions by their parents, and have earlier responsibility, both of which would develop independence of character. Probably also, the first-born child of families in the world would generally have more attention in his infancy, more breathing space, and better nourishment than his younger brothers and sisters in their several turns. The opposing disadvantage of primogeniture in producing less healthy children and half as many idiots again as the average of the rest of the family has not been sensibly felt, partly because the latter risk is very small, and partly because the mothers of the scientific men are somewhat less youthful than those from whom the above statistical results were calculated. C. Duncan, On Fertility, etc., 2nd edition, page 293, 4, for tabulations of Dr. A. Mitchell's results. An unusual number of the mothers of the scientific men were between 30 and 34 at the time of their birth. This is a very suitable age, according to the views of Aristotle, but undoubtedly older than what Dr. Duncan's statistics, page 387-390, recommend. According to these, the most favourable period for the survival of mother and child, and therefore probably the best in every sense, is when she is 20 to 25, at the time of giving birth. 
The important question of the effect of the age of the parent on the well-being of the offspring seems never yet to have been treated as strictly and as copiously as it deserves. Dr. Duncan, in the chapter of his work above referred to, has discussed the materials at his disposal with great ingenuity and industry, but adequate statistics sorted according to the various classes of society are still wanting. Fertility the families are usually large to which scientific men belong. I have two sets of returns, the one of brothers and sisters, excluding for the most part those who died in infancy, and the other of brothers and sisters who attained thirty years. In these several cases I have included the scientific man himself, and find, on an average of about one hundred cases, that the total number of brothers and sisters is 6.3 in the first case and 4.8 in the second it is a matter of great interest to compare with these figures the number of the children of the scientific men themselves. It is easy to do so with fairness because the time of marriage proves to be nearly the same in both cases. If anything, the scientific men marry earlier than their parents. It remains to eliminate all cases of absolutely sterile marriages on the part of the scientific men and those in which there might yet be other children born. Having attended to these precautions, I find the number of their living children, say of ages between 5 and 30, to be 4.7. This implies a diminution of fertility as compared with that of their own parents, and it confirms a common belief in the tendency to an extinction of the families of men who work hard with the brain. On the other hand, I shall show that the health and energy of the scientific men are remarkably high. It therefore seems strange that there should be a falling off in their offspring. I have tried in many ways to find characteristics common to those scientific men whose families were the smallest, but have only lighted upon one general result, which I give provisionally, namely, that the relative deficiency of health and energy in respect to that of their own parents is very common among them. Their absolute health and energy may be high, far exceeding those of people generally, but I speak of a noticeable falling off from the yet more robust condition of the previous generation. It is this which appears to be dangerous to the continuance of the race. My figures give the remarkable result that there are no children at all in one out of every three of these cases. I think that ordinary observation corroborates this conclusion, and that those of my readers who happen to have mixed much in what is called intellectual society will be able to recall numerous instances of persons of both sexes, but especially of women, possessed of high gifts of every kind, including health and energy, but of less solid vigour than their parents, and who have no children. I do not overlook the fact that the scientific men are an urban population, being mindful of results I have published elsewhere, Statistical Journal, 1873, which show a similar diminution in the average fertility of townsmen as compared with country folk. But this would not account for their being less prolific than their parents, who were also townsmen, nor for the large number of wholly sterile marriages. Heredity The effects of education and circumstances are so interwoven with those of natural character in determining a man's position among his contemporaries that I find it impossible to treat them wholly apart. Still less is it possible completely to separate the evidences relating to that portion of a man's nature which is due to hereditary from all the rest. Heredity and many other cooperating causes must therefore be considered in connection, but I feel sure that as the reader proceeds and becomes familiar with the variety of the evidence, 
it will insensibly effect for himself much of the required separation also from time to time as opportunity may offer i shall attempt to draw distinctions the study of hereditary form and features in combination with character promises to be of much interest but it proves disappointing on trial owing to the impossibility of obtaining good historical portraits the value of these is further diminished by the passion of distinguished individuals to be portrayed in uniforms wigs robes or whatever voluminous drapery seems most appropriate to their high office forgetting that all this conceals the man the practice might well be common of photographing the features from different points of view and at different periods of life in such a way as would be most advantageous to a careful study of the lineaments of the man and his family the interest that would attach to collections of these in after times might be extremely great end of chapter one part one of english men of science by francis galton